Welcome to the Red Hand Podcast. This is a special episode. I'm joined by Brian Moylet. So Brian came to my attention because of his book, How You Become a Pro Rugby Player, which has gone the number one on Amazon. Um, and obviously you have a podcast as well, the Off-Field Rugby Pod, which I really recommend the listeners and I, I guarantee you'll enjoy that. There's some great uh, guests on there. So uh, Brian, welcome. Uh, good to have you. And uh, could, could you just sort of tell us a wee bit about yourself? Cheers, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so where it started, I suppose, grew up in the west of Ireland in Ballina, County Mayo, and started playing rugby like lots of other people in my local club. And as was like others as well, I dreamt of, you know, playing for my province or my country for both of those. And yeah, I kind of remember once oh, I was about eight or nine years of age and I was watching a match and my dad, we were in the front room and he switched on an Ireland game. And I was like, what's this? And he said... It's Ireland versus France. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. And is there any other Ireland teams or is, is that it? And he said, yeah, there's there's under 20s and there's under 18s. So I remember thinking, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to play for the Ireland under 18s. <clears throat> so this was eight or nine years of age. You know, when you're a kid, you, you dream big. You you say, I want to I wanna do that. And anyway, worked hard like every other player and just loved rugby, like loved it growing up. And always had that in my sights. Like I just wanted to play for Ireland, and under eighteen was the the first step or the first time you could do it. So anyway, played away and then played some provincial stuff. And I remember I got quite close, and I was I was in camp. So with the I went to school in Leinster, and then played at the Leinster schools, and felt alright, felt pretty comfortable there, and got called up to the Irish camp, and we had a camp in the summer, another one, and all was going well. And I was like, geez, I'm. I'm getting real close here. Like I've been dreaming about this for 10 years and like, wow, it's like I'm hanging around with all these guys that are so good and I admire them like lads from all four provinces. And then we went into a third camp and they said to us at the start of the camp, they said, this is the last camp before we select the team to play Italy. So it was 32-ish guys was been brought down to 23. And then I started to kind of be like, whoa, geez, I'm close and you kind of feel the nerves you know because everyone we're all 17 year old kids and we're all all want to play for our country and there was a team meeting then and I remember we all went in the forwards and there was a bit of a nervous energy around and the coach went into the corner of the room and there's one of those paper flip charts and he said we're going to go through the lineouts now and you need to learn these lineouts in the next 15 minutes before you get onto the field and if you don't learn them you're not good enough for international level, right? That's what it takes. You need to be able to switch on and clue in. And I'm like thinking, oh, wow. And so he starts scribbling all these lineouts and I start getting my head thinking, oh, I don't know, should I be here? I don't know, am I good enough? And oh, this is challenging and oh, I don't know. And I kind of froze and I started to feel this tightness in my chest and all this negative talks are going on in my head. And I started saying, oh, I'm not good enough. And Anyway, we were down to the field and I essentially froze. I couldn't, I had no energy. Don't know if anyone ever been there, but it's just an awful feeling. Like, don't want the ball, don't want to be near it, just not thinking I'm any good, kind of like inferiority complex. And anyway, it got dropped. And then I was just like, wow, that dream I had for, for years and years. And I'd always worked hard in the gym, worked hard in the field. That's what I was told. Work hard in the gym, work hard in the field, and you'll get you'll get success. But I knew nothing about the mental side of the game. I knew nothing about how to train your mind. I knew nothing about how to deal with nerves or build confidence or self-belief or any of this stuff. And so that was the first time it um 
it kind of I suppose caught me out and it, it was at that point I realized I was like if I want to make the Irish 19s next year if I want to pursue this dream of mine that I've had for 10 years I have to become a confident player so I I worked on my confidence and I, I essentially started learning more a bit about the mind and how I could be more confident on the field and that's how I first got into, I suppose, 10, 12 years ago, started to understand a bit about the importance of the mental side of the game. And yeah, since then, you know, played rugby with different teams. And uh, then 18 months ago, two years ago, I went full time into this space because it was over COVID. I know a lot of people were thinking about what they were doing. And I was working in finance and I have a younger brother who has now just signed for the Seattle Seawolves, actually a former Ulster man, Alan Clark, is coaching the team. And he was seven years younger than me. And I used to help him. He'd be asking me questions and then I'd chat to maybe one or two of his friends and chat to younger players. And I was coaching on the grass, um, doing lots of coaching myself. And I just realized there's nothing out there for young players. Like there's nothing out there to help young players with the mental side of the game. Unless you're in a professional setup, you don't get any help with the mental skills yet. All coaches and all people will say, oh, it's all about the top two inches. You know, you need to be strong mentally, but players get no support with it. So I knew that it's what I needed when I was younger. So, yeah, 18 months ago, two years ago now, I set up off-field rugby on my Instagram. That's how I started out first, off-field rugby on Instagram. Then the podcast kind of soon after that, just chatting to different people about their experiences and what worked for them, what didn't work on the off-field rugby pod. And then two months ago, about I uh, released the book on how I become a pro rugby player. So it's very, very long winded there. Um, but yeah, that's no, that's it's fascinating. And, and like the, the reason I wanted to speak to you is because you're you, you seem like such an interesting guy. And like there's um, there's a lot of sort of people involved in rugby, either playing or coaching rugby, and um, they sort of end up in it. Do you know, uh, they, they maybe just have always been good at it right through school, whatever. And, and for some people, uh, not a huge amount of thought has to go into it, but I'm always fascinated by guys like yourself. Another, I mean, there's a number of examples of guys I've spoken to. John Cooney is a big one, who's a, a really deep thinker as well and reads uh, reads about performance. And he there's a, um, a number of books that he's read that he was telling me about, about uh, psychology, one which is actually... Is, is about golf um but he says that really helps with his kicking and so it's great to great to talk to great to talk to someone who, who has such an insight into the mental side of the game because especially from an Ulster perspective at the minute and we can talk about that in a wee while Ulster seem to have a mental block at the minute when it comes to seeing out games so I might ask uh for for a bit of advice around that uh later on but um just tell me a bit more about the book and and that process of of writing a book and is it something that you'd always thought of doing or was it just something which you're like this you have this accumulated knowledge and it's time now to share it was that sort of the process yeah so I didn't always think about think about writing it but maybe similar to John Cooney you mentioned um but about four or five years ago I just kind of went hard into this area I suppose and started reading a lot of books myself and around psychology, philosophy, mindfulness, all this different stuff. And to be honest, I was reading a lot and I was working with a player one-on-one and this is about a year ago. And I had all my books behind me, the like the books I was reading, the different books. And he said to me at the end of our session, he said, is there any book you'd recommend for me for my rugby? And 
I was kind of thinking, oh, what would I recommend to him? What would I recommend to him? And there wasn't really anything very specific. And I was just thinking, there isn't really anything for rugby players around the mental side of the game. Like you mentioned, John Cooney talked about um, the golf one. And there are I've listened to one or two Bob Rotella ones that are good at golf. But yeah, there's nothing geared specifically towards mm-hmm. rugby players and especially young rugby players. And when I was growing up, I just had nothing like that. You know, there was nothing. There was nothing that I could go get a book and, and learn about this stuff. You know, like so many players get crippled with nerves is such a normal one. Like I remember being dressing rooms, guys getting sick. And it was just common, like guys would get sick and be sick with nerves and um, there's nothing there to help them. And so how it started out, yeah, that guy asked me about it. And that was one thought. I was like, yeah, there's nothing there. And around that time, I was just writing lots of notes. Um, I would write down, say, pre-match nerves, or I would write down visualization or preparation, these different things, and just jot loads of notes on them. And then I kind of realized, no, there's kind of like four chapters of a book here. And then that's those two things were how it started so the book itself is three sections the first section is develop your mental strength so i talk about uh, setting goals overcoming limiting beliefs uh, understanding why you play and then dealing with setbacks because that's a big one um is that when things are going well all good but when people get setbacks i know i in the past it kind of knocks you for a while and you can dwell on it or be it in games or or outside, like if you get dropped off a team, you can start all of a sudden thinking you're no good and that can really affect you. Then the second section is about playing in the zone, like how you get into the flow state in the zone, how you play your best rugby on the field. And then the third one is getting paid to play. So I just talk about how you put a highlights tape together, how you get into different systems and how you progress up through the ranks, if that's something that you want to do. But even if you're just a social player, the first two sections, which are chapters 1 to 13, even if you're not interested at all in playing professionally, the first, yeah, 85% of the book would still be applicable to you. Yeah, and, and I suppose this book, it's, um, and I've heard the sort of best businesses, the best books, um, best inventions are solving your own problem. And uh, I think it's it's interesting and surprising that there's nothing has been written of this nature yet. It's, a, it's quite shocking, really, isn't it? Like, there's so many people, a bit like yourself, and a bit like you know, any young person, including myself, who plays rugby, your goal, but especially when you're young and naive, like, I was never going to make it, but you, you always dream of being a professional rugby player, and here's a how-to guide and how to do that. It's amazing, and... Like there's lots of sort of young rugby players listening to, to this uh, podcast and um, I'm sure that they'll be delighted to hear that there's a book now and at least it gives them a blueprint uh, for for how to how, how to sort of achieve their goals and and, and, um, and dream big. And in, in terms of that, so if you're speaking to a young person and um, they're asking you about being a pro player, I mean, it's maybe not realistic for everyone or... What, what's your what's your attitude towards that? Do you know, a, wrong, a young person comes to you, maybe someone's mum or dad says, "Look, my week, my wee son or daughter, they're, they're pretty good at rugby. They're they're excelling." What are the, th- the key things you would look out for? I mean, there has to be you have to have a basic level of athleticism, I'm sure. But I mean, how much of it is hard work? How much of it is is sort of your physical attributes? Yeah, so it's interesting to say there about um. The book is a blueprint for how you become a pro rugby player, but I, it's not just about that. And, and I talk about that in the book in chapter 17 about how what I think is most important is that you enjoy your rugby. 
that if you, when the day comes that you have to hang up your boots and can't play again, that you say, I absolutely love that. I loved every moment of that. That was so much fun. I got to play with these guys, girls. I got to play with this team, that team. Like if you play AIL the whole time or you play junior rugby or whatever your level is, that if you can be the best version of you and enjoy every bit of it, then that's success, isn't it? You know, so I, I talk about that in the book and it's, yeah, as I said, it's it's not just about the pro rugby players, but it's interesting as well. I, I've i seen so many players. So I've, I've grown up with players that say now are playing with Ireland or the Lions or Rundadine Rube, Henderson when we were in 19s and... I've also went to the States and I, when I was 23, I went to St. Louis on a rugby scholarship. So I saw a lot of guys there as well who, Americans who now are playing MLR, some of them who've gone over to Europe and played professionally in Europe. And you would nearly be mind blown about the varying levels of who makes it and who doesn't. So when I was 15, 16, I always thought the superstar on the under 16s was the one who would become a pro. But it's not always the case. And yeah, there I've seen lots of guys who are 17, 18, 20 years of age who were middle of the pack in their university team or in their club team who then just have savage work ethic and just keep pushing and do make it, do say become professionals or do play at the top level or the one below. So it's hard to, there's no special formula. And you know, I was talking to... um Nigel Carlin on the off-field rugby pod, who used to be the Connacht Academy manager and the Ireland under-20s coach. And we, we talked a bit about this, about um, talent identification. And it's difficult to see, you know, what 16, 17-year-olds will make it, say for coaches picking them. But for those players themselves, the ones that keep pushing are often the ones who who make it. It's not really talent. Like, you see so many talented 16, 17 year olds, but then they go drinking when they're in university and they stop playing. Yeah. So it's not really about, it's not really about talent at 16, 17. It's more about that mindset and that work ethic, that will to get there and having the discipline and the commitment to, to see it through, you know, for over those years. And Robbie Henshaw, you know, Leinster Ireland player wrote the forward for the book. And he talked about that in the forward. He was, he said how, you know, when he was 17, 18, there was discos on every weekend, but he didn't go to them. He went, you know, every four or five weeks he went to them, but he wasn't going every weekend because he'd have a game on a Saturday. So it's those kind of uh, the discipline and sacrifice that, that it often takes, whereas you could be the best 16 year old in your school or province or whatever. But if you're going to the disco every weekend and you're you're not really working hard, then, yeah, it's not going to work out for you. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's a recurring theme of uh, the guys I've spoken to, like every podcast. Um, something I'm always fascinated by is uh, asking guys what they were like at school and asking them, because that's where I suppose rugby players are identified. It starts the process is getting earlier and earlier in terms of um, sort of talent scouts and regional development coaches and things and uh, out looking for players and almost all of them say, look, I was I wasn't anything special at school. Now part of that will be modesty, but part a large part of it is probably true. They say there's about five or six guys in my team were better, and um, I, I find that so interesting um, that you sort of assume whenever you see guys out in the pitch, 
and uh, the, the 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 likes of Robbie Henshaw is a good is a good example of like he just physically looks like he's made to play. <laughs> Do you know in the centre for Ireland? He's um, uh, but that all comes from a huge amount of hard work. And um, just on that, I suppose what what physically can you do as a as a young player? I think that's an interesting question. What would you be focusing on as a young player coming through? Would it be skills? Would it be physical size? And now, obviously, it would be nice to have both speed, power, skills, everything. But if you had to work on something, what would be your advice to a young guy coming through? Skills are hugely important. You know, skills are hugely important. And what I would say to young players is focus on what you do well. So the few things that three things or four things that you're very good at and you know you're pretty good at become brilliant at them, like really focus on them. A mistake, I think it's not been taught too much, but when I was growing up, it was very much pick out all the weaknesses in your game, tell you about how bad you are at those things, and then work on them. That's what, you know, I was always, you know, looking at my weaknesses. And when you do that too much, then you all you can see is deficit. So instead, focus on the things that you are good at and... I was talking to Ezen Asewa on the Offfield Rugby Pod, and he said, have an 80-20 rule. So spend 80% of your time working on the things you're good at and 20% of the time working on the things that you're not so good at that you want to get better at. Um, and, you know, physically as well, it is important to work on that, to be conditioned and to be fit. But a good diet helps a lot. You know, e- eating well, sleeping well helps with your athletic athleticism. You know, so it's it's the gym is one thing, but also what are you doing for the other 22, 23 hours of the day? You know, are you eating well, sleeping well, drinking plenty of water? And uh, yeah, so the other thing is with the the physical people mature at different ages. So if you're not the biggest person at 16, 17, even 18, don't be too disheartened. Like, you know, keep working hard and, you know, people can have growth spurts at 19. People can put on. You know, you often see people put on 10 kilos when they're 21 years of age or 20 years of age, or they kind of mature a bit physically. So it's interesting. Yeah, just going back to it or back in a circle. But the it's funny because at 16, 17, you really start weighing yourself up against other people. And that's when also selections are starting to happen. And once again, even going back to it, I remember when I was under 19, as I said, I was rooming with Ian Henderson and I said to him, I was like, where are you? You you didn't make the Irish schools last year because I was in those couple of camps. I ultimately didn't make the 23, but I was in a few camps. He wasn't in one. I'd never met him for it. So I said, where were you last year? He said, oh, I didn't even make the Ulster schools last year. And, you know, I wasn't in a big school and I didn't make it. And but uh, but yeah, made the Ulster Ulster 19s or was it 20s. And yeah, I got selected on this. and, And then he made the 20s and then the World Cup a year young and then obviously he's, you know, the rest is history. But, you know, sometimes you might make the Ulster schools and all of a sudden you think it's the end of the world, you know? Yeah, yeah. I know. It's it's funny. And tell us a wee bit more about um, the guy. So for, for those listening, so Brian, you came through like the the Leinster, the Irish uh, schoolboy squads and then Ireland under 19 and Connacht under 20s isn't that right so you, you you've been around and you've probably played with uh, some amazing players tell us about your contemporaries coming through and henderson being one 
Yeah, so I grew up in Connacht, but then I got dropped from the Connacht under 16s. And then I was, when I was 15, I went to school in Ross Gray. I wasn't really studying. I was hanging around the town, and my mum and dad said, All right, you got to, we got to send you off to the rugby, got me there, but they were more interested in the books. They knew that it would keep me keep me in study or whatever but I was like all right I'll go if there's rugby so anyway I went and and then I was dropped from the Connacht 16 so I managed to get onto the Leinster 18s I played yeah on that side with Jack Cohn and Luke McGrath and um that was the first I suppose interpros and I mentioned the Irish schools didn't go so well but who else was on that side um I can't remember as many the 19s Tyg Furlong um yeah, Ian Henderson was in the row as well on that 19 side. Kieran Marmion, can't remember what Ulster, Rory Harrison, Johnny Murphy, the hooker, uh-huh. um, Ulster man who went down to Connacht. And yeah, I remember 20s were, we were playing uh, Ulster at a good side. Chris Farrell was playing, um, Stuart Olding, Paddy Jackson had got called up to the senior team. But yeah, it's... Yeah, it's interesting looking back. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Enjoyed all that stuff. Played against Ulster A as well. I think we got a we got a bit of a trimming for Connacht Day against Ulster A. Luke Marshall was unreal that day. Um He's still he, still doing well. Yeah. Yeah, he was a standout. He was a standout and deceptively good as well. Decept <laughs> you you know, you look at you look at him, he doesn't it didn't look as good, but geez, yeah, carved us up and then Craig Gilroy and a few of them. But um but yeah, no, it's it was cool. It was um yeah, I loved it. Loved uh getting to play with guys that have gone on. It's cool to also see see them kick on. It's, you know, it's really enjoyable. And even at that time, I think it's something that's very important as well. I tried to get across to players is to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, enjoy every moment. Like, you know, if you get to play, even schools, rugby, whatever it is, whatever level you're at, enjoy it. And the other thing is, is that it's not that any any level in particular is more enjoyable. So if you look back even yourself at your own career, say when you were eight or nine years of age playing rugby, that's probably great crack. Or when you were 14 or 15 or when you were 18 or 19, it's not a mistake that players make. And I talk about this in the book at the end is don't think I'll be happy when I make this team. So a lot of players and I've been there, you get caught up in this, always focused on the next step. You're always thinking about, oh, if you're in school, I need to make that Ulster 18 side. And if then I need to make the Ulster 19s, I need to get into the national talent squad. I need to, and you're always focused on the next step. And when you do that, you forget to enjoy where you're at right now. And you start to get in your head a lot as well. And you start to worry, you know, will will it happen? Will it not happen? And worrying and none of that stuff actually helps you. So it's very, very important to, yes, have big goals, 100%, have big dreams, have big goals, but truly enjoy the day to day, you know, enjoy going to the gym, enjoy going out to training in the evening, enjoy getting to play with where you're at right now. And when you enjoy it and when you're having fun, things just happen anyway. You don't you don't actually need to be worrying all the time. That's something that I kind of when I was growing up for a while, kind of I nearly had conditioned to myself that I needed to be stressed and to be Mm -hmm. thinking about, oh, am I doing enough? Am I you know, am I going to make this or that? And, you know, it, it's really about enjoying it and, you know, work as hard as you can, but enjoy every step. Yeah. And it's a good sort of jumping off point to to bring it back a wee bit to Ulster Rugby. And I don't know if, you, if you're able, to, I'm sure you have lots going on and it's quite hard to follow sometimes, but Ulster Rugby recently have had a bit of a mental block in terms of uh, they've been in the leading games. 
And we have a very talented squad featuring some of those guys that you've you've mentioned that you've played with, like and a great crop of young players coming through. And they're just not playing at their potential at the moment. And um, in terms of what you're saying there about um, going through a rough patch in the field, not playing at your potential, what are some of the things that you can do to get back to playing? So everyone goes through, it's it's so interesting, like dips in form happen, and it can be for various reasons. But I mean, what are some of the key sort of pointers that you give to someone who, who was in that situation struggling with a, uh, through a rough patch? Yeah, so it's it's difficult what I'm going to say, but you a big thing is to stop worrying. Okay, so whatever level you're at, you have things you can worry about. So if you're a professional player, a big thing around now is contracts. So players worry about contracts. And when you're in that state, you think about it even yourself day to day. If you're constantly worried and stressed, that's not a good that's not good for you like physiologically, if you're just constantly walking around stressed all day. So, of course, you're not going to play at your potential if you're always stressed and worried. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's about doing things that, and this is why mindfulness is now very big in rugby, and players do mindfulness so that they can be present and not be stressing and worrying so much. And uh, yeah, there's lots of different things around that, like, you know, meditating, having a good sleep routine. And another thing is then people could say, oh, Brian, it's very well and good. You're saying don't worry. But like I I have this happening, that happening and that happening. But I guarantee you that if you forgot about all that and just played rugby and focused on having fun and pretended like it was your last game and just let go of all of that and just went out and had a crack, you'd actually play quite well. Because when you think about it, when you were a kid growing up at, say, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age playing rugby with the lads or whatever sport it was, you weren't worrying about what the coach is going to think. You weren't worrying about what fans are going to say on Twitter or what uh, the media is going to say, or you weren't worrying about all this stuff. Do you get me? You were just playing ball. You were just out there playing ball. And so that's what the flow state is, is when the flow state or being in the zone is when you're completely present. Mm -hmm. So, um, it often happens when you're a kid and then as you grow up, things start going on in your mind and you start worrying about, oh, if I make a mistake, I'll get dropped next week and then I won't get picked on this team. And all this stuff starts going on in your mind. But that's what is that's what stops you playing well often is is that's what it is. It's all this stuff going on in your mind. So it's about getting rid of that. And yeah. as I said, mindfulness is a good thing to do, but you can you can actually just tr- do your best to just stop doing it. Just go, I'm not even going to care about it anymore. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I've got like, there's a million one things that we can all worry about day to day all the time, but you yeah. just have to, yeah, not. <laughs> I know. And that's, uh, and some people listen to, to that. As you said at the very beginning, people will go, it's all well and good saying that, but uh, I'd love to not worry, but I can't do that. And um, I've, Oh, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, sorry, some things on this. So yeah, so some practice I would say to people is um, meditation in the morning is incredible. You speak to anyone who meditates and they're going to they're gonna be the biggest salesman ever, you know, because it just is incredible for your mental health and to give you just a calmness. So I would encourage anyone, anyone who already meditates every morning knows, and I would encourage everyone else. And even if you've tried it in the past and what often people will do is they will try meditation and their mind will race and they'll say, I can't do it. It's not for me. I know that people say how great it is. It's not for me. 
but meditation is not about stopping your mind and stopping your thoughts okay the thoughts still go it's about bringing your focus onto one thing so when you're meditating you focus on the breath breathing in now through your nose and then you think oh i gotta go to work later today and i gotta do this and then you realize your mind is racing you just bring your your attention back to the breath then the mind goes again bring it back to the breath and it's that practice of bringing it back to the breath and then when you're in games the if if you're meditating and you're good at that practice of bringing your attention back to the breath when you're in games and you make a mistake you will be able to bring your attention back to the breath which is the present moment and stop your mind racing about the mistake you made mm-hmm. or all these other things that could go on so that's actually why it's beneficial also for players because you become skilled at 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 not letting your mind race and bring it back to the present moment and so a way you can do that is a way you can build up a meditation habit is get a piece of paper and put 30 boxes onto the piece of paper and say to yourself that every morning after I brush my teeth I will meditate for two minutes three minutes one minute if you have to when you start get a guided meditation on YouTube just type in two minute guided meditation put your earphones in listen do what they say you know go along with them do it for two minutes even if your mind's racing I'll go take the box you've done one do 30 days after 30 days you'll start to see some benefits and it's it's worth it and as I said anyone who who does it regularly will will tell you but I I yeah it's I can't speak highly enough it, it just really helps the mental health overall and helps you play in the zone as a player as well yeah, it's so interesting. It's an area, meditation, mindfulness, um, uh, breathing exercise, but even things like visualization or things that uh, in the past, and I, I, I'd be a big reader of rugby players' autobiographies, and so they react in different ways to these practices or ideas being brought into their club. So uh, I've read different different books where players have laughed at that over i mean this is going back maybe 10 15 years or more um do you think clubs are harnessing this in an appropriate way or do you think there is still some resistance there's a there's a certain resistance from people who um view all of that as unnecessary or um Oh, it's, it's, I don't know, maybe it's the, that macho atmosphere where the idea of mindfulness is so foreign. Is that something which is yet to be fully embraced or are, are we getting there with it? I think we're getting there with it. You know, I think uh, we are getting there with it for sure. And um, yeah, like you mentioned, John Cooney, I played with uh, John as well. And you know, I see his Instagram putting up different things. And uh, I think that the best players, the best players, get it and they're doing it um i I do think and as chatting as you mentioned bernard jackman on the the off-field rugby pod and i was chatting to him and he said that joe schmidt used to do with the irish team the mind gym he called it where all the players would go into a room and lie down and they would do a meditation where they focus on their breathing and then would start to visualize and I, i don't know did joe lead it or not to be honest, it was Bernard Jackman telling me, but they would be led through plays in their mind. Mm. And that's visualization. And that is incredible. A study was done in the past in, I think, Harvard, but there's three groups of basketball free through shoulder, free through free throw shooters and three groups. And they tested their free throws on day one. 
And then the first group didn't practice at all for two weeks. The second group practiced every day for half an hour for two weeks. The third group did visualization practice for 30 minutes every day for two weeks. The first group got worse. The second and third group had showed the same amount of improvement. So, and it's been proven that the neurons and uh, different things in your brain, the same ones fire when you are thinking about it as when you are doing it. So you visualizing yourself place kicking or you visualizing yourself uh, doing hooker throws is as beneficial to you as you actually practicing it. And so Joe Schmidt with the Irish team would do that, would lead them, would, you know, through the visual, visualization practice, they'd go through all their plays. And once again, this is the second I knew, or uh, information, but Bernard Jackman would say the players would be, was said the players are sweating coming out of it. And that's true. You can get so into it and so deep in the visualization that you actually start to sweat. And um, it's, yeah, it's a hundred percent. It It's been proven. It's not... I know when I was growing up as well, I would have heard of it and be like, meh, that's that's ridiculous. I'll go back. Let me get back to the gym there. Let me go back on the bench press, you know? Uh, but it's it's literally been proven that yeah. visualize that meditation helps you perform under pressure. It helps you stay calm and focused when the pressure comes on. Visualization actually fires the same circuits in your brain as physical practice, and it helps with you um your physical skills so it's yeah it's 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 coming <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a, already here yeah it's incredible and and as i say there's i think it was matt williams who was coaching at ulster um back in the sort of earliest 2000s and he was saying about a similar exercise and um one of the ulster guys writes in their book about everyone started sort of like giggling do you know that they just find yeah. the idea so hilarious that they're being forced to uh, visualize what was going to happen in, in a game? But um, no, I'm re- I'm so interested in that, and um, it's uh, some something which, as you say, look, there's other players as well. But Cooney's a, a good guy lead, leading the way with all this, isn't he? Yeah, and one other one on that is so you know when you're young and you're in school, maybe this makes I wasn't too interested in half the lessons I was doing. But you know, when you start looking at the window daydreaming, and you daydream about you play in rugby, that's visualization. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, so many people, I, I'm sure listen to this, have have been in work or school, and they're looking out the window, and they're just thinking about the game at the weekend. Yeah, that's them visualizing. So, so people have probably done it without actually realizing they're doing it, or you think about you playing for Ulster. You know, you're a schoolboy and you're you're lying in bed at night and you're just thinking about you running out onto the field with Ian Henderson and John Cooney and Stuart McCluskey. You know, that's you visualizing. So, and it's powerful. And uh, yeah, a lot of, I've re- read many different books that will say that for you to achieve your dreams, you first have to see it in your mind. So you have to get clear on your goal. One that I like is, an analogy is, the best uh, marksman in the world can't hit the target if he doesn't know where the target is. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to know what your target is. And then, as I said to you at the very start, I dreamt about playing for Ireland when I was eight or of wearing a green jersey when I was eight or nine. And, you know, those underage teams, I had them very much in my mind. You know, I would I would dream about running out onto the field or getting to pull on that jersey as as of probably 99 percent of the people listening to this. So that that's visualization. Yeah, it's it's. 
uh, as you say, there's, um, and not many of us w- would admit to it, but you do. And even even as you get older, you, you still dream of playing at that, at that level. So you might be out for a run, but you're thinking of sort of running to the next rock. Uh, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who does yeah. that. <laughs> but you do it especially as a kid. And it's so funny that uh, whenever you said that, I was like, right enough, when you're a kid and you're bored in class, all you can think about is scoring a try for, for Ulster or Ireland or whoever, wherever you happen to come from. Um, and so all these things, and, and probably some of the best athletes do it naturally without thinking that they're doing it. Do you know what I mean? As, as you say, they're, they're visualising um, and it's just something they, that they do without thinking about. It, it's it's so interesting. And one of the, uh, or there's a couple of books that, I find really interesting. So one of them's um, Bounce by Matthew Syed. Um, he talks about um, sort of uh, practice and efficient practice and uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell as well. They talk about conditions in which to, um, uh, in which sort of top competitors, athletes and business people are made. And the 10,000 hour rule is, is a big part of that. And um, uh I, I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts on like how you practice efficiently. So if you're a coach or, well, you're, I know you coach, but if you're um, advising sort of a, an aspiring rugby player coming through the ranks, what would you say to them? Would it be visualization or what are the ways in which you do quality practice? Because um, it's something that I've seen come up on your Instagram a number of times. Um, I, I talk about that and sort of, how to practice uh, efficiently and effectively. Yeah, so it's uh, an interesting thing. Two things you said, there, the 10,000 hour rules and then efficient practice and something with, there's no getting around it. you got to do a lot of work if you want to be the best version of you. And something that I think is hugely important is that you enjoy it, that you want to do it. So an example like kicking, I was a second row number eight, but I, I played Gaelic football growing up, so I love kicking the ball. And I used to go out with the tens and after school, we'd go kicking. We'd kick for two, three hours until we had to go in for tea. You know what I mean? We just loved it. But we were doing goal kicking or, you know, like just going out pass and playing touch. Like whenever we got a chance, it was like, let's run around with the rugby ball. So you got to love it and you got to have fun. And so if you're doing extra sessions or you're thinking about that, think about how it can be fun. You know, think about how you can enjoy it if um if you're going out with your buddies doing different sessions. Yeah, make it fun, put competitions in there. You know, it doesn't all need to be serious all the time. You know, if you're doing passing stuff, go for those mad passes, that triple skip over the top and, you know, have a laugh, have a bit of fun um, and play around as well. Play around, you know, it really doesn't have to be so serious all the time. And I think that's a mistake that some people make. They think that you have to be very serious, have a stern face all the time and that you can't be have a smile on your face or have a laugh. And I think uh, a great influence in Ireland is Southern Hemisphere players are Aussies and Kiwis. You know, I remember started playing with one or two of them. And I think, I don't know, as a change for young people in Ireland, but when I was growing up, we all used to think we had to be. William Carlyle Coaching, helping yo-yo dieters stop living their life on a diet and achieve long-lasting fat loss results. We've helped hundreds of dieters ditch the strict, boring and bland diets whilst losing 15 pounds minimum in 90 days. This is all done with the Fit for Life Transformation Program. It's the counterintuitive approach to weight loss and will change your life forever. 
If you want to know more, grab your phone or pen and paper to write down my social accounts. On Instagram, it's at William Carlyle Coaching. On Facebook, it's just William Carlyle. If you'd be interested in learning more, drop me a message and let's chat. Hello, the Red Hand listeners. This is Jonathan Moore from SS Moore Sports in Belfast. We just stopped us at the front door of the City Hall onto Chester Street, where we've been since 1950. We, again, like most other years, carry a full range of the Ulster rugby product. We do hoodies, tees, polos, jackets, gilets, scarves, hats, luggage. We do adults and kids. And that can be seen in-store or online at ssmsports.co.uk. Hope to see you guys soon. And don't forget, shop local. The Red Hand is proudly partnered with Shredded Juice Bar, a fantastic local business based on Belfast's bustling Lisburn Road. Shredded Juice Bar stocks a range of fresh, healthy, wholesome and delicious foods and drinks. Fresh juices, smoothies, SIE bowls, protein pots, overnight oats, protein balls, salads and wraps. You can tailor our menu to your needs. Everything is served just the way you like it. We're all about feel-good food. Come and give us a try. We know you'll love it. We're open seven days a week. That shredded juice bar on the Lisburn Road in Belfast. We look forward to seeing you soon. Serious, we'd all be like very stern face in the dressing room and, you know, you'd be nearly, you'd literally be trying to look serious and trying to be that way. Whereas I remember I was more relaxed and I realized later in my mid mid to late 20s that, I prefer just listening to music, being chilled and and just being loose and whatever, having a bit of a laugh maybe. And then, yeah, of course, I'd switch on out in the field, but a bit of a tangent. But um, the efficient practice, I think that you just playing, having fun, being in the moment, it'll it'll come. So, you know, save us playing touch, just playing. You know, the more you play, the more, the more like the big one is kicking. People ask me, oh, how can I become a better kicker? It's like, yeah, for sure, there's these little tips here and there, you know, focus on the ball, not the post, uh, kick through the ball, follow through. There's lots of these little things, but a lot of it is hours. Get out with yeah. a bag of balls for two hours, two or three evenings a week for eight years. Yeah. You know, from the age of 12, 13, just, you know, just kick 10,000 hours of balls, you know, like that's, yeah. Th- there's not a lot of getting around that. Yes, sometimes there's no replacement for that. And and you do see a contrast and it takes all sorts, I suppose. Um, there's Johnny Wilkinson, who if you've I'm sure you've listened to podcasts and I've read his book as well, but he talks about um an almost it's an obsession, an absolute obsession, which probably and, and I think he'd say this himself, probably went too far the other way. He was absolutely he was he was almost driven to madness, do you know, <laughs> by by uh, getting sort of 10 perfect kicks in a row. And if, if one was even slightly off, mm. you'd, ha- you'd have to start again. Whereas you've got, in contrast, you've got guys like, I'm just trying off the top of my head, Carlos Spencer or someone like that, who are clearly enjoying playing or um, Quade Cooper or someone like that, um, who, who uh, you respect as well. And there is, I suppose, there's a bit of a paradox between um, you want to you want players to enjoy the game but there's also that aspect of what you're saying about sacrifice, and there's there's also um, you, you have to uh, 
almost you're talking about visualizing and, and setting setting your, your your sights on a lofty goal and that does take a degree of of seriousness and it's striking that balance correctly and w- whenever you look back and you're talking about your time with the uh, with the Ireland team you know coming through the ranks the age group level it, whenever you look back at that do you wish Sorry, this is, that was a, a lengthy preamble. The question doesn't necessarily relate, relate exactly to that, but whenever you look back and you're at that sort of young age, do you look back and go, oh, I wish it, I'd known these techniques back then? Do you have any regrets in that sense whenever you look back? Oh, man, uh, I do wish so much that I knew what I know now back then, and that's why I wrote the book, but... I don't have regrets, look, because in life, I think you are always doing as best you can in the moment you're in with the knowledge you have. And so I I didn't know back then. And look, I just didn't know. And that's life. And we talk about you're talking about discipline and sacrifice. And I worked as hard or harder than anyone, you know, in the gym, on the field and putting the hours. A mistake I made is I was out drinking too much and it just, you know, uh, just after games, you know, the kind of culture, which just isn't great, but that culture of having 12 or 13 beers after a game. And if I were to talk to my younger self, I would educate him on how, yeah, okay, you can, you might, it mightn't affect you next week, Brian, at the age of 19, and you might still be one of the better players on your team or not. I'm not saying the Irish team, I'm saying maybe club team or whatever, but I would, I would have a chat with him about that, how it's, if you actually want to get to the very top level, that's something that's going to hold you back. And, you know, you mentioned Johnny Wilkinson earlier and his, um, there was kind of like a mental health problem coming in there, like with OCD and with, uh, and he spoke about that. He spoke about his uh, mental health struggles, which was really like admirable of him. But you can still enjoy something and do it for many hours. And sacrifice can also be enjoyable. So I'll just take something for me, recently that me writing this book like I used to go out every weekend and then for the past year I met my friends once every three weekends and I kind of stopped drinking really because I didn't want to be hung over on a Sunday and I enjoyed not going out all the time and I enjoyed working on the weekends and working most days quote-unquote working but yeah it is work I was writing this book and I enjoyed that discipline. I enjoyed that sacrifice because I was, yeah, enjoying that, you know? And some people say, how could you enjoy staying in on a Saturday night and writing a book versus going out and getting hammered? But they mightn't understand. But for I don't know, some people will get me in that. And the rugby players will get me. Like I said, in the forward of this book, Robbie talked about it as well, like staying in. But, he, you know, he probably enjoyed playing well on a Saturday. He probably then enjoyed playing for Ireland under... 18s 20s he probably enjoyed playing for Connacht when he was 19 20 years of age when his friends were you know maybe still going out or so while you uh you sacrifice maybe the Saturday night here and there believe me you'll enjoy running out on that field living your dreams so yeah there's uh you can enjoy it and and I now personally would go out and kick a ball until my 30 year old legs can't kick anymore. You know, and I, I went out there kicking the last day. I went out for an hour and a half too. And the next day I couldn't walk for two days, but like, I, you know, I, I'd go as long as I could or yeah, it's, you can enjoy it, but yeah, for sure. Things can, if it's, if you're not enjoying it, then you got to look at it. 
if you're if the discipline the sacrifice you aren't enjoying it and it's not worth it for you then you got to look at it if you're if you're pushing yourself through extra sessions and it's a chore and it's a you're not enjoying it then for sure you got to look at it but if you're enjoying it keep going yeah yeah and it's it sort of circles back because um you're saying at the beginning like the, the times that you enjoy would be the most or or when you're sort of growing up and you're playing at school it doesn't matter if you're getting paid necessarily and that is true of people I speak to very often. One of my questions, because um, I'm always interested in the response, is what are the highlights of your career? Now, it sounds like a basic question, but the, the, it is surprising how many people go, it was whenever I was playing at school and uh, I was playing with a bunch of mates and um, or uh, it's sometimes even after they've finished playing and they go and play for their local club and the pressure's now off and they can go out and enjoy it and enjoy just getting out in the pitch at the end of the day, that's what sport is primarily there for. It's about fun. And I think we take it very seriously. And, and a lot of guys, and I think particularly uh, in uh, the North of Ireland, a lot of guys play rugby at school. And I know this is the case in Dublin as well. There's maybe six sort of very good sort of rugby playing schools and they take it so seriously. It's almost professional in, in sort of the standards they set and the time that you dedicate to it. And it puts people off and they go away to uni and, and they just couldn't be bothered, as you say. Like It's not enjoyable for them anymore. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a really good point that, that you made about sort of um, re-emphasizing and focusing on the enjoyment, the enjoyment aspect of the game, getting out. I, I completely agree with you. There's few better things you go on and putting a ball about. If you've got a dog or something, just putting a ball about in an empty rugby pitch. <laughs> I get it. I 100% get it. And I, I want to just, I, I, I could talk to you all day, but I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll sort of begin to land the plane of the interview here. But in terms of what you're, because we skipped a, a, a large part of your life, and I want to hear a wee bit more, just if you could take us sort of through what you did after. So um, there's that big gap between playing Irish schoolboy and then Connaught under 20s in Lansdowne. And, and tell us about your time in North America as well and what you've what you've been doing over there. Yeah, I'm good with time as well. I'm not doing anything else after this. But uh, yeah, so I... Yeah, uh, Connor Twenties played at Lansdowne, was lucky to win the AIL in 2015 with um, a very good team. A lot of guys that went on to play, say, professionally or beyond that. Um, Tom Farrell, Tom Daly, Peter Dooley, Ty Byrne went to the Lions. And and uh, then I got a scholarship to the States. Yeah, very randomly. I was in, I was just in Dublin. I was playing with Lansdowne, playing with the Connor Eagles. And a buddy of mine was in the States and he gave me a call one evening uh, when I was in the office. I was 23 working in an entry-level finance job and he said that the Fords coach was leaving and he said I should come over I'd be good at the job player coach and anyway so I, I kind of hummed and hawed for a week or two I was very much enjoying what I was doing I was kind of thinking about maybe getting a contract in England or France in a year or two or you know I'd won the IL I was I was happy with that and um, then this came so anyway I thought you know I'd go over there even though university rugby is a level down I'll get to do a master's and I could also potentially play with the Eagles in three years, uh, three year residency rule then. But 18 months into it, I got a very, no, sorry, six months into that. Uh, after I left, I got a very bad shoulder injury, which for a year, 18 months put me on the sideline. And I 
you know, toward the cartilage, I tried to keep playing. It got worse and worse. I got surgery. The surgery relapsed. I was five months after the surgery, do my rehab. I was told I could uh, get back to non-contact passing. And I passed a ball one day and I just felt a pop. And uh, to be honest, I got very depressed around that time because I was waiting for the surgery for five, six months. And then I got surgery and then I'd agreed to go to Chicago, who were going to be in the MLR that year. And it was 2017. They were meant to be one of the first teams when the MLR was starting. And I was kind of thinking, you know, do school 18 months, do professional rugby there, and then get into that, try get into that set up the Eagles. And uh, then a year after I hurt the shoulder initially, it went again. And then I started losing all um, movement in my arm. I you know, I couldn't move my arm then after a week or two. And I, yeah, just got very depressed and um, went a bit off the rails and I was just in a dark place. And uh, that then was when I really started looking into the philosophy, psychology, mindfulness, um, spirituality, like just I was in a dark place mentally myself and I'd never say suffered any mental health issues at all and up until the age of 24 and then that happened and I was just like I need to feel good again so I started studying hard 24 25 and um that's I suppose what really kick-started what I'm at now so when I was as I mentioned earlier when I was 18 I had that experience where I understood the kind of mental side of rugby but then this was I suppose mental uh, mental health on a different side of life in general and uh anyway so then I was there and that was literally 18 months I was away from the game. Technically, you know, my shoulder was goosed. And and then uh, I went back, to, had to move back to Ireland. I got um, cortisone, cortisone injections. I thought I'd need another surgery, but thankfully a few rounds of steroid injections into the shoulder. But my shoulder got so bad that I couldn't move my hand six inches away from my pocket. I was having trouble getting dressed in the morning. And so it just weighed on me. And, and as I said, I was meant to, I had this idea that I was going to be playing pro rugby there and I was going to um, go play with the Eagles and all this stuff, all these ideas. And it was all kind of came down around me. But um, but I kind of think I live my life thinking everything happens for a reason. You know, it's, it's a bit of a blessing in disguise when I look back now because it really set me on this path. And um, I'm very fortunate now that I I have the awareness that I do and um. And that I also went down the path I went down. But after that, I then moved to Canada. I went home, got all this extra uh, star injections for four, five, six months. So that's then 18 months after it actually first happened. And then I moved to Canada. I said, I just wanted to move there and just live and just just hang out. And I love rugby so much. I was 25 year, 25 then. And I started playing. I was like, what's the best team? So I joined the best club team in Vancouver. And... I was just playing so carefree, so worry-free because growing up, I'd always been like, I want to get to here. I want to get to here. I want to do this. I want to do that. And and I had did plenty of stuff, but I essentially thought I'd never play again. I, my shoulder was so bad. I thought, geez, I wouldn't know would I ever be right again. And I managed to get back in the field and I just enjoyed every moment of it. And I realized then after kind of six months, how the stuff that I was studying outside of it to feel better in the mindfulness, the spirituality, the philosophy, all this stuff was there was a big reason as to why every moment I stepped, every time I stepped on the field, I just felt untouchable. I felt like I felt like just 
I was just going to be the best player every time and that I just couldn't be stopped. And yeah, it was a couple of levels down. It was probably like AIL 2A, 2B equivalent. But then I got named in like the Canada Club Team of the Year. I got picked in the BC team to play against Canada before the 2019 World Cup. And that was a cool, that was a cool um, situation. Like, as I said, I kind of thought rugby had finished. And then yeah, I was picked in that, played in that, and then kept playing. COVID happened. And COVID was when I started off field rugby. And then after COVID, I was like 28 and I was like, yeah, I'll keep playing, you know, and the regional team started up and they asked me to come out. I was like, yeah, cool. And then I got selected in the Canada West team. And then there were people talking to me about playing for Canada. So it was a five-year residency rule. And I was, all of a sudden I was there four years and I was one, won the comp with this regional team in BC and was selected for the Canada West, which is the one below and it feeds into Canada A. And, uh, so then all of a sudden, yeah, over COVID, I was like, I'm going to go play with Canada, you know, and uh, I just got that focus back. And I was while I was loving my rugby up until then, I was still taking it pretty casually. And then I got more, inte- you know, fo- more focused in the gym and the conditioning and doing all that and still absolutely loving uh, my rugby. But in February this year, then I got a concussion, a, a very bad one. And I had had four, you know, probably four proper ones in the past. I'm not 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 to downplay at all any any concussion, but just what four where sorry I was like uh, saw black, um, and then this one the symptoms were very very bad, like just um, very emotional, irritable for a few months after, a bit depressed, um, just just not myself, not myself, and so I then. Uh, had to I just decided to call it a day you know um even though I was as I said I had this uh playing with Kanda in my in my mind and I was yeah getting close to doing that I was eligible in May of 2023 and so anyway I was close to that but just the symptoms were too bad uh, headaches very very bad headaches for months and uh I just said I, I had to call it a day um so yeah rugby that's kind of where I went after and it's um it's funny because that period in the middle, um, I talked about this more on, on my podcast recently because um, it helped me a lot here and other people talk about their mental health struggles. Um, other just different people talking about it helped me when I was in that place. So I chatted a bit about that on the Off-Field Rugby pod recently. But um, it's funny, while it was a, a tough time and no one ever wants to go through a period where they're depressed, it, as I said, it it set me on a path of like learning about the mind and which has just helped me that uh, look i'm very grateful that 99.9 percent of the days i'm just loving life and everything's great and of course i have we all have those down days we all have those days where whatever you're getting a bit stressed about a work deadline or something random but um yeah then that then it was over covid then i was like all the stuff i know now is like i'm playing the best rugby in my life here i'm 28 9 whatever it's like I can't be stopped. It's just too easy. Rugby has just become so easy. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I really gotta help others with this. Yeah. Yeah. And and look, there's so much uh, like such a inspiring and interesting journey that you've had. And like there have been, uh, have been speed bumps along the way. And I suppose a career in sport uh, entails uh, more than most, most other professions, uh, a roller coaster uh, and there's massive ups and massive downs and you're out sort of living the dream and then you get 
you get your injury and then you're back and you get your concussion. And I, I'm really interested about the sort of the mental health side of it. And uh, like, as you, you've benefited from other people talking about it, I'm sure there's people listening to this will, will really benefit hearing about the tools and the, the strategies that you used. And you should have mentioned that you got to a point with your mental health where there must have been a, a moment that all clicked and you, you, you decided, look, I'm going to channel this frustration, I suppose, uh, depression, some people describe as sort of anger without enthusiasm. <laughs> and um, in terms of what you um, what you did to bounce back from that, what are the key, apart from meditation, which we've talked about, but what, what are the other key strategies that you used in order to uh, harness your, your energy and, and get back to being more like yourself? Yeah, so... Uh... As I said, I'll chat about my experience because I know everyone's different and I'm not going to say this will work for you, but from what, what worked for me. Um, so that period, as I said, I, I was in the States and the shoulder was goose and I had to go home to Ireland and to get the the health care. And so I was at home in Ireland. I was in my family home. My parents are the best ever, but I was living at home in the West of Ireland with no job, no prospects. I saw no future. I, I was depressed and the shoulder was getting right. And I tell you, I went back to that surgeon and when they said to me, you won't need surgery, these injections and physio for three, four months will get you right. When I saw a bit of a future and I saw a bit of a a purpose that gave me just energy, I was like, I'm going to because that's always the way I've been built. I was like, be it, I'm going to make that team. I'm going to bench 100 kilos. I'm going to run four minutes in the Bronco. When I have a goal, I can work towards that goal. So when that surgeon said to me, four months, you're going to get back to being on a rugby field if that's what you want to do. I was like, I'm going to do that. And I just went into that physio and just do my two pound weights and my mobility. And that gave me a goal. And then when I got three, four months down the line, I played a game or two with my local team, Balna. I said, I'm going, I'm, I was at rock bottom here and, you know, and rock bottom. But I said, I'm going to go and go back to the States and coach and I'm going to go to Vancouver and I'm going to just, you know, I, I started setting myself goals of and purpose. I just think purpose is is very, very important. Having a purpose and have something that you're working towards every day and something that you're passionate about. And that really helped me. Um, and I saw it as something that was transitory because I had grown up for 24 years. You know, I, I know... Um, a family, someone in my family who who had depression and they had it since they were very young and they talked about having it all their life. So I knew I didn't have this all my life. So I knew that I knew I could get back to being me. And I knew that me was a very happy, enthusiastic, excited, driven, ambitious person. And so there was a period when I was going through that where I was say, drinking and just like not seeing any brightness in anything. But then I went home and stopped all the drinking and started living a bit cleaner, but I was still very down like mentally. And then when I, when that surgeon told me, yeah, that, you know, you can get to here. I said, that's all I needed. I said, if you say I can get my arms, get strong again and get back on the rugby field, because I knew that rugby, I enjoyed it so much. I, even working out, I knew that I enjoyed going to the gym so much and I couldn't even go to the gym. So when they told me that it would be possible, even as, I was, I said to them, my arm feels so bad. I can't even move my arm. They said, no, no, you will get, it is possible. Then I said, all right, I'm going to go after it. So a long window, but just having a purpose was for me, 
um, huge. And as I said, it started off with the getting the strength back. Then it went to going back to the States coaching. And that's when I kind of said, I'm going to be a coach. I'm going to go for this because I love playing. And I started coaching then a lot, five, six years ago. And then the playing. And even now it's something that me, uh, like I'm on a mission to help young players and help players, all players with the mental side of the game, because I know that you can be ambitious and enjoy every moment of it and be excited about your rugby, but others don't. And so I just, yeah, that's my purpose now. And then I, you know, writing this book, doing my podcast, putting stuff up on Instagram, like I have a purpose. So when I wake up in the morning, I have a purpose about my day. And and so that's a big thing. But then some other small things I'll just rattle off pretty quickly. Um, One of them is having a morning routine. So how you how you do your morning is it sets you up for your day. If you have a good morning, you'll probably have a good day. (laughs) And some things that uh, for me is it starts with having a good sleep. So when you have a good sleep, you wake up refreshed. And so something I do then every evening is an hour before bed, I turn off my phone, put my phone away. That helps with sleep. It helps your mind unwind. And then I'll read a book. I'll maybe stretch a little bit. I'll plan my day tomorrow. So I'll plan the next day and set out the the morning. So get up at this time and get up when your alarm goes off. I always feel better. You know, the odd day I sleep in, I feel shitty after I sleep in. When I wake up, when the alarm goes off, I feel good. I'm like, I'm the man. I got up when the alarm went off. I'm the man. And I have a cold shower. I got into those three years ago. There's many, many benefits. I won't go into them, but it's great. If you have heard of it and you're thinking about it, turn the shower cold for five seconds at the end of your hot shower, then turn it for 10 seconds, then go 15 and just build it up. It's worth it. Cold shower, meditation and um, working out every morning. Um, and don't get me wrong, I, you know, once a week or once a fortnight or once every 10 days, I'll, I won't. I'll have a lazy day, but I don't feel as good as the days I'm on track, to be honest. And so that bit of structure and routine really helped me in- incredibly. And it, it's day to day. I just take things day to day. Like I, you know, it's just I just think about tomorrow and, you know, just this evening, I'll I'll plan my day tomorrow. I'll write down the things I need to get done. I'll write down what time I'm getting up at and I'll, then tomorrow I'll I'll go after it. You, what you're describing is what I've aspired to and ne- never quite managed, you know, uh, th- that level of organization, but absolutely love that level of practical advice because I think there's a tendency, people don't want to be too prescriptive about all this, but I think, see, if you're in dire straits and you're not feeling too good, you need someone to tell you, look, go to bed at, this, at a proper time, get up, do, uh, get your cold shower and get your meditation and and be quite prescriptive about it because that's what people need. And um, I love that. Uh, I love that practical advice. I think it's really good about creating a purpose. You know, if there's uh, maybe a purpose that you don't have, make one, whether it be writing a book or whatever, get get something to focus your your energy and your efforts into. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I've been like yourself, um, I've interviewed probably 70 odd uh, pl- current players and ex-players and um, one of the the big things that, that I have taken away is about identity, and um, I, I, just hearing you talk about that, you know, um, you, you're someone. Your life has been largely revolved around rugby and sport, and whenever you there's a risk of losing that identity, then it it, it starts this spiral of of uh, you don't know how to cope, or at least you didn't at a certain time, and um, it's it's inspiring to hear how you got out of that um, because. 
that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, if something hadn't clicked, your life could have taken, you respond to these things one way or the other, <laughs> and you've responded in a really positive way. And I think there's a really interesting market for what you do, like young guys um, either trying to get into the game and also those p- people who are transitioning out of the game, that sort of practical advice uh, is really useful to them. And uh, w- one of the things I, I just want to ask you about is, I find the whole um, uh, rugby in North America is really interesting to me because um, it's sort of unexpected that they don't have, USA should be punching more above their weight, or sorry, they're punching currently, they're punching below their weight is what I mean to say. Um, Probably slightly true of Canada as well, considering the number of amazing athletes that they produce. Um, I'm thinking primarily American football, there's such a small percentage ever go on to play it, even socially. It's sort of like the impression I get is you you play it at high school or ever college. And if you don't make it professionally, you don't go and play for your local team. You, you end up as a spectator. No. So you'd like to see a lot of those guys go into rugby. And there are, off the top of my head, there's, you mentioned Seattle Seawolves. There's a bit of a presence, a bit of an Ulster presence out there. So Alan Clark and Justin Fitzpatrick, I think, helped uh, massively in, in with Seattle Seawolves. And, and uh, Roger Wilson's out there, uh, Kieran Joyce and David Busby out there as well. Tell us a bit more about rugby in North America. What is the trajectory? And uh, are we going to see a USA team, for example, in the next sort of five, 10 years that uh, is competing with the, the big rugby nations? Yeah, so it's interesting that uh, rugby is is so much of an afterthought for young people in Canada and, North, and America. So you've got the big American sports, um, basketball, football, hockey, uh, baseball. And in Canada, where I was more recently ice hockey is just number one and uh, then football and rugby is just very niche and um, the athletes are there but the challenge for them is getting them playing rugby younger and so I can just speak about my experience when I was in St. Louis there was a really we had a really good team in Lindawood that I was player coach of um, Malon Aljabouri and Chance Wengluski went to the last World Cup with USA when they were kind of 22 years of age and there was a few others, Dion Mikesell and guys that were getting capped when they were 1920. And these were freak athletes. And I remember chatting to them. I was like, why did you play rugby? They had D1 football scholarships and football there is huge. And they were very um, mature in what they said. They said, with rugby, we can travel the world and we can, there's more ups, or there's a better chance of getting to the top, whatever, let's say that. But they'd been brought on a tour to Argentina or Chile when they were like under 17 or 18 and they got had that experience and they were like, wow, I want to go travel. So, And they only started playing rugby when they were 16, but they had their eyes opened to rugby at 16 and they turned down, yeah, like football scholarships. Now they still got full ride rugby scholarships, but you know, those th- four guys I coached uh, in Lindawood who turned down football scholarships, went on to play with the Eagles. So that's just four. Like, And obviously there's tens of thousands of these kids and they only started playing when they were 16. So imagine if they started playing when they were 12. And they're still good enough to go to the World Cup in 2019 when, yeah, they got beat. Okay, but like they're competing. Like like Chance, uh, he won the MLR with uh, New York and 
went over to Ireland is scrummaging against Tyg Furlong and he's a 24 year old American guy and he's did all right like okay he didn't kill him or anything but like like did all right so these guys can compete and I know American rugby is is not doing very well right now but they need to get them playing younger that's it you know because these guys at the age after five six years of playing are very competent you know but but you know yourself the the game IQ it does take years and years and um yeah, it's just about getting them playing earlier. And there are good people out there on the ground, but I don't know, it's still a very it's very niche, you know, and the support, it's it's hard for them to get support. Like I used to help out with the rookie rugby, they call it for the eight year olds, but it's when I was in St. Louis, but it's very much just uh the few kids of the the rugby dads. Yeah. So like you'll have the foreigners, half of them will be foreign dads and half of them will be dads who found it in college and yeah. they said they love it and they want their kids playing, but then you've got eight, nine kids, and it's very hard for them to then recruit more kids. And it's always an uphill battle. So I don't know how, you know, people always talk about the sleeping giant. People always talk about, oh, um, you know, we'll soon see it. But uh, I'm not sure, hopefully, yeah. but I'm not sure. And I think professionalism is a big thing. Sorry, a bit of a rant. But uh, it's very, prof- MLR is important because when those guys can see that they can actually get paid to do it as well. Like the mm-hmm. guys I mentioned talked about travel yeah. and they talked about life experience. Um, yeah. But uh, maybe they obviously thought about that they could make it over in Europe or, but they always talked about Europe. Um, but yeah, the professionalism is a big one. So if, if the MLR can, you know, keep on keeping on and just trying to keep build and, and stay, stay there, hang in there and keep building, then, then these kids can in high school or in then middle school start to see like, Oh, there's a, a team in Seattle, there's a there's a rugby team here I can play with. And then they see maybe, you know, Perry Baker, Carl Niles, these other guys who've transferred over. So it's going the right direction, but I don't know about five years or ten years, who knows? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. And as you say, look, people have been saying for years, oh, America, give it next World Cup. I think we'll see something from them. Um, but we maybe need to look uh, slightly further than that. But um, yeah, rugby is becoming a bit of a hard sell, I think, especially the parents with, uh, I mean, you're, uh, you've spoken about your concussion and that's that's a huge issue that um, I'll not open that can of worms. Um, but uh, it, 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 it still remains a pretty niche sport, you know, and um, I'd be fascinated to see how many amazing players we could get out of America um, uh, if, and as you say, it is this, there is chat of this sleeping giant and to to grow rugby globally, you sort of need to get America on board. Soccer have been trying to do it for years with limited success as well. Americans are pretty, I suppose, stuck in their ways in the sense that they have the sports they know and love and uh, even the likes of Roger Wilson going over and teaching them how to tackle (laughs) hasn't done it just yet and yourself going over as well and um, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting uh, discussion, which again, we could talk about all day. But I, I, I want to just finish up um, by asking you a couple of quick fire ones. And uh, I always enjoy these types of questions. Number one, who's the best player that you've played with uh, coming through the ranks? That's a pretty broad question and played with a lot. But is there anyone you'd single out? Yeah, um, to be honest, I wouldn't single out anyone. But there's been so many, there's been lots of players that at different levels, I've just been like, they're incredible, you know? Mm. Um, like there's, I don't know, there are four or five guys on the last Lions tour who like technically you could say, you could say them, but like, no, like, um, there were, uh, no, at, at every different level, there's been guys like even playing in 
Canada, there's one or two who I was like, wow, how did you not, how did you not play super rugby? How did you not play Heineken Cup, you know? Um, but uh, on the last lines for, I don't know, there was Jack Cohn and Robbie Henshaw, Tyg Furlong, Ian Henderson. Maybe that was it, but um, but no, I wouldn't single anyone to be honest. It's a bit of a who's who of Irish rugby that you've played. It's hard to hard to single them out, and uh, yeah, amazing that to have that those experiences. And the the other one um is who's the best coach that you've coached or been coached by? And as we add on to that, what makes a good coach as well? Because I know you've done a bit of coaching yourself. Yeah, so um. I'm going to have to say two. Uh, sorry, these quick fire questions. But uh, Nigel Carolyn was one um, in the Connacht Academy. He was incredible. And he was the first coach who uh, fully allowed me to express myself and gave me and us, gave all of us the license to express ourselves on the field, um, to go for the offload, to to take what option we felt was best in the moment. He was a very uh, good skills coach and we would do all the skills and he would trust us to take the right option and he would back us and he would make you feel comfortable in doing that. So that was, I started being coached when I was kind of, 18 19 20 18 probably and um up till I was 22 and that was the first time to be honest I had a coach who really made me feel like I could do that otherwise you're always thinking oh will the coach be mad if I make a mistake so Nige um and that's one and that's why and then the other one is Mike Ruddock who I had he didn't pick me I was uh an injury reserve for the Irish 20s World Junior World Cup in South Africa um and I saw a funny one but uh I remember there was an there was a under nineteen guy, a Leinster under nineteen guy who was didn't even make the Leinster twenties that year, who got picked ahead of me the last the last pick probably. I was the back row, second row back row reserve, and but that guy was Josh Van der Fleer. He came out of nowhere and got picked, and then I was like, I look back and like, well, geez, <laughs> Mike was right then to pick him. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't make that squad, but uh, didn't make the plane, and uh, but I had him with Lansdowne for three four years, and um. Mike was very good at making you feel like you were the man. So he used to, I was the line-out caller and he used to call me Victor Matfield. He was like, you're the best line-out caller in the league. You're like Victor Matfield. And he used to call me Victor. He was like, you're Victor. And then the second row next to me came in is uh, Josh was his name and he was just a big bruiser. And we were a very skillful team, Lansdowne and Josh was just a big bruiser but Mike used to call him he's like oh we've now got Backies both that to go with Victor and he's like you're exactly like Backies and then I would play like Victor Matfield I, Josh would play like Victor and he would talk to Ian Prendival our tight head and be like you're the best scrummager in the league Prendo what are we, wh- what are we going to do today in the scrums you're the best in the league and all of us he would just he would build us up so much that we were like no one can stop me I was like I am the best you know and yeah. and, and it's I learned a lot from him and a mistake that people make is they think about cocky or being, but it's like, no, no, you want to go out in the field feeling like you're the best and that no one can touch you. Yeah. So he he was very good at that. Yeah, fascinating. Because again, I asked that question and some people love technical coaches and, oh, he taught me so much about technique or especially forwards and scrums and the, the technicalities and the dark arts. But like, in terms of man management, that sounds like prime sort of Jose Mourinho, st- like making you feel on top of the world, which, you know, that's hard to beat in a coach. So um, okay, it's uh, it's so interesting. And look, the, I, again, I could sit, I've taken up about an hour and a half of your time here. And one of my favorite 
conversations I've had. And I mean, that I've spoken to lots of people, and um, yeah, fascinating insight and um, great to talk. So, thanks so much for your time, Brian. Really appreciate it. No, Peter, not at all. Thank you so much. And uh, fair play for everything that you're doing with this podcast. It's unreal. And, uh, you know, it's class. And yeah, you're 70 or so episodes in and keep on keeping on. And yeah, brilliant to see. Cheers for having me. Will do. And uh, if uh, people want to listen to your your podcast, it's the Off Field Podcast. You can get it, as far as I can tell, in every sort of reasonable uh podcast platform and, and your book is also available the best place is amazon is it to get your your book yeah so the book on how you become a pro rugby player amazon is the place to get it so amazon.co.uk or wherever um and yeah the off-field rugby pod spotify wherever you listen apple and uh yeah and then if anyone has any questions about anything um instagram send me a dm there at off-field rugby or linkedin my name is brian moyla yeah if there's anything that I don't know, you're thinking about or any questions you've come up uh, for sure. Send me on a voice note, send me on a uh, text. I would love to help. I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Really appreciate that, Brian. And absolute pleasure to talk to you. Cheers, Peter.